This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Time, as we understand it today, was only really invented in the Victorian era. We take it for granted today that our phones and watches and other devices are accurate to the second. That time zones are clear and fixed. When it's 3pm in Dublin, it's also 3pm in London, and 4pm in Paris, or 10am in New York. We don't think twice about the fact that a train can be scheduled to leave at precisely 11.04, and when it arrives, passengers will be clear as to what time it is at their destination. We tend not to think at all about the fact that we might begin work at 9am sharp, and that if we arrive at 10 past 9, we're late. We are, for the most part, comfortable with the fact that the Earth is very, very old, that continents formed billions of years ago, that dinosaurs lived hundreds of millions of years ago, and humans far more recently. We know that time travel is a trope of science fiction, but not a scientific reality. We're aware that the sun is a star that's burning through a finite store of hydrogen and will, eventually, burn out and die. And so will the human race. But all of these ideas about time, things we just don't think about very much today, were not fixed at all in the 19th century. It was in the Victorian era, particularly from the middle of the 19th century onwards, that time moved to the forefront of public consciousness. The concept of time was pondered over, debated and discussed by everyone, from factory workers to scientists, tradespeople to academics. Time found its way into novels by the authors of the age, from the renowned to the long forgotten. It was investigated and interrogated across scientific disciplines by geographers, geologists, naturalists and so many others. And it caused fierce debate amongst those charged with regulating and organising trade, transport and communications. All across the world, time was a hugely important facet of life in the 19th century. Which was why an international conference held in Washington in 1884 was so important. This was the International Meridian Conference, convened by US President Chester Allen Arthur to choose a prime meridian for the world. This meridian would become the international standard for zero degrees longitude. Up until then, there were lots of different local variations, which was incredibly and needlessly confusing for navigation. The conference also established a universal day, beginning at midnight at the prime meridian, and would begin the worldwide implementation of universal time, and later time zones as we now know them today. Delegates gathered from all over the world, from South and Central America, from the US and Asia, and from all the major European powers. Britain and its colonies, France, Germany, Russia, the Ottoman and Austro-Hungarian empires. And the delegates all had great titles, like Envoy Extraordinary and Minister Plenipotentiary, Naval Attaché, Privy Councillor, Imperial Staff. And so all these fancily titled men got together to choose the Prime Meridian. Except it was already kind of a done deal. Longitude is vital for navigation, and there was one naval and commercial superpower in the 1880s that was particularly adamant that zero degrees longitude, the beginning of the universal day, should be at the centre of the world, at least as they saw it, in London, at the heart of the British Empire. 
So the Royal Observatory at Greenwich was selected as a location for the Prime Meridian to run through, and the gathered delegates duly voted in favour. France, of course, was not happy, but they were on the losing side, so they diplomatically abstained. If you like these kind of things, you know, you're the sort of person who likes putting one foot on either side of a national border, you can go to the Greenwich Observatory and there's a big line on the floor where the otherwise invisible prime meridian is marked out. It's lots of fun. But this conference coming towards the end of the century in 1884 was really the culmination of a number of strands of time-related issues. Time, as I've mentioned, permeated so many aspects of life in this period. So we need to go back a little bit to understand this. 1859. The construction of Big Ben is completed. The bell and clock tower that would become one of the most recognisable images of Britain. In 1859, you've got Big Ben, this kind of monument to standardised time, suddenly in the heart of London. And uh, every town would have had a big public clock. So people would have been very, very conscious of time in a new way and in a very public and shared collective way, rather than it being personal or individual. This is Dr Trish Ferguson. I'm Trish Ferguson. I'm a lecturer in Liverpool Hope University. Uh, One of my interests is very much to do with how the Victorians conceived of time. This new public awareness of time signified the beginning of the end of a measurement of time that has existed since, well, since as long as humans had thought about time at all. It was a shift from organic, natural time to mechanical, artificial time. With organic time, you get up at sunrise and you go to bed when it gets dark. The time of day is approximate and based on the position of the sun and other natural features, or on tasks to be carried out or meals to be eaten during the day. And if it's noon in your town, it's utterly inconsequential if it's noon in a town hundreds of kilometres away. And for the vast majority of people, this was absolutely fine. But as the 19th century wore on, there was a change. Time became mechanical. Factory jobs were regulated by fixed hours. Town clocks kept a very accurate record of time, from which people could set their own pocket watches, which proliferated at this time. And so Big Ben, this monument to standardised time, was symbolic in so many ways. It signified a new confidence in accurate scientific measurements, a standard of time in an era that was all about standardisation. The Treaty of the Metre would standardise weights and measurements in 1875, for example. But it was more than this. It was the most accurate timepiece in the world. Like the Greenwich Meridian three decades later, it too was a standard from which all else deviated situated at the very centre of the British Empire. And it was completed in 1859, a noteworthy date for several reasons. For one, 1859 is the date of Charles Darwin's landmark publication on the origin of species, a book crucially connected with time, which I'll get back to in a minute. 1859 was also the year of self-help. Literally, it was the year the book Self-Help, the one that started it all, was published. 1859 was quite an interesting year. You not only have Big Ben, but you also have um, Samuel Smiles publishing self-help in that year. And that's really preaching the evils of wasting time. So this sense of time and discipline and the ideas of efficiency, these ideas all really take hold, I think, in the middle of the Victorian era. But there was one factor more than anything else that affected how people thought about time and about space. A factor that prompted the shift towards standardisation and heralded the age of mechanical time. The railway uh, changed everything. 
Initially, you had all different towns had a different time. You know, you had district time rather than national time. So you had to have standardised time to facilitate the railway. So uh, basically, that you could have a timetable running for the railway so that there weren't accidents and uh, so that people could know what time they would arrive in a town according to the time that they would leave, their local time and the time they would arrive. They would have been two different times initially. So we had to have standardised time across the country so that you could travel. And this problem got worse if the country was spread over a much larger area, as, say, the trained networks of India or Russia were. In the US in this period, there was a ludicrous number of different times. You had all the different local times across the country, as well as the different railroad companies who then set their own times. So a train might be arriving at, say, 11am, but that was 11am according to that railway company, not the time in the station. That was local time. Then you'd get on your train, go to your destination, and that town would have another time. And these times were all over the place. So, for example, in one period, if it was exactly noon in Washington, it was 12 minutes past 12 in New York, 11.18 in Chicago, 10.08 in New Orleans, 9.02 in Sacramento. It's just so confusing. So trains really changed things. Suddenly, it did matter what time it was 100 kilometers away. Spaces were drastically and permanently reduced. And it was both exciting and terrifying. I think people find it really discombobulating at the time to be suddenly shuttled through the landscape at a speed they'd never experienced before. Before that, the fastest way to travel was on a galloping horse. So suddenly you have steam engines allowing you to suddenly hurtle through the countryside. And people were very afraid of trains initially. Um, There were a number of accidents in the 19th century and we have Punch uh, magazine actually coming up with these cartoons where you have the, the, um, the train anthropomorphised. You've got them figured as monsters. And you had this whole phenomenon of railway spine as well, where you had people actually making insurance claims that they'd in some way been damaged. It's kind of an early kind of post-traumatic stress disorder kind of claim. And as I'm sure you remember, railway spine and other nervous diseases was the subject of episode six of this podcast. So you can Go have a listen after this, if you like. Um, Charles Dickens was involved in a railway accident, and um, that was that's quite well known because that's when he um, was sort of busted with his affair with Ellen Ternan at the time, and he al- almost lost the manuscript of Our Mutual Friend. But there's also quite positive things to be said about the railway as well. It facilitated industry. You have newspapers as well being brought from one place to another very quickly. So you have quite immediate contact with faraway places. So you've got, you know, the world becoming smaller as well at this time. And uh, people being able to take day trips and go on holidays. And it's just changed the way people lived very radically. Railways, of course, also benefited military transport and colonialism. And there was, in this respect, a resistance to standardised time. Dublin time, for example, was 25 minutes behind London time, and there were many who felt strongly that the country should resist London's time just as it should resist London's rule. Just after the 1916 rising in Ireland, London replaced Dublin mean time with Greenwich mean time. Countess Markiewicz, one of the leading figures in the fight for Irish independence, and the first woman ever elected to the British House of Commons, was appalled at the idea. She wrote in a letter that Irish public feeling is outraged by the forcing of English time on us. But if local times, railway times, factory times, and so on were a matter of practical, everyday concern, there were other profound shifts in thinking about time that were happening in this period as well. When Darwin proposed his theory of evolution in 1859, it was built on a foundation of time, vast geological time frames that are far beyond human comprehension. In order for natural selection to function, Darwin proposed, it had to work over hundreds of millions of years. 
the Earth, as the geologists of this period were beginning to argue, was much, much older than previously thought. It had to be to account for the Earth's geographical features and, in Darwin's belief, to accommodate natural selection. This was a radical change in how people thought about the Earth and its inhabitants, including humanity. This was the most radical thing. I think it's the biggest intellectual challenge that um, a a group of people could face is this idea that uh, we don't necessarily have the the story of um, where we came from, from the Bible anymore, that that um, could potentially be undermined by what we find um, from the theory of evolution and from geological findings that supported that, this idea of deep time that came in in the Victorian era, that we came about over a vast uh, scale of time rather than within seven days, which is quite a comforting thought. So the repercussions were absolutely huge. People had always felt that they were the pinnacle of creation, created the seventh day by the hand of God. Suddenly we have this idea that uh, perhaps we are just highly evolved monkeys and we had to take that on board. Um, And that had huge repercussions. Raise questions about whether or not we have a soul, what happens after we die. And this was connected to religious and spiritual time, to immortality and eternity. This led to spiritualism and to people thinking about the possibility of um, human personality almost being like a form of energy that could transform into another kind of form and go into the ether. So you get these infamous table wrapping seances of the Victorian era. And a lot of writers were really drawn to these uh, seances like the Brownings and Christina Rossetti uh, thinking about, you know, do we have a posthumous existence? And this leads to ideas about kind of secular ideas about eternity. And spiritualism, of course, was the subject of episode two. There are so many connections in this week's episode. Not everybody believed in this. Obviously, this was a small group of people. Um, a lot of this was undermined by, you know, the fact that a lot of these people were imposters and, um, you know, just other people had different views. I mean, famously, Alfred Tennyson, he wrote In Memoriam, a very Christian poem, and he said he was convinced that God and the ghosts of men would choose something other than mere table legs uh, through which to speak to the heart of man. Um, so you have a very Christian understanding of time that persists, even with all of these questions about time that were raised by Darwin. And if right about now you're saying, but what about the second law of thermodynamics? Well, you'd be right. You should be thinking about Lord Kelvin's famous law. Because in the 1850s, just when all of these issues around time were being debated and discussed, Kelvin was publishing his statement of the second law of thermodynamics, which explained how total entropy always increased and accounted for why natural processes were irreversible. The idea of the death of the sun um, raised by this idea of uh, entropy, that the energy was finite and could potentially run out. Uh, People feared the death of the sun. So you get a lot of apocalyptic literature at the end of the 19th century, particularly uh, this time of great anxiety when people are starting to think, you know, what happens next? So yeah, certainly on a personal level, people think about life after death, but on a broader scale, certainly you see people starting to think about the end of time. You have H.G. Wells, for example, in The Time Machine, imagining what happens in the future. And of course, the future is that sense of kind of going backwards, of devolving, of having a a barren landscape with kind of crabs crawling around and no human existence apart from the time traveller himself. Um, So certainly, yeah, you get all of these uh, different ideas about time uh, on a more global and collective scale. And so the 19th century was the beginning of time travel literature, most famously, as Dr. Ferguson mentioned, H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, but there were lots and lots of others. 
Yeah, it's funny. There's actually ideas about the fourth dimension or time travel, the possibility of time travel. We do get that actually early in the 19th century. So um, the earliest one I found is a story called An Anachronism or Missing One's Coach from 1838, um, which is a, a kind of story exploring the possibility of time travel and um, where uh, the the traveler actually goes back and meets the venerable Bede and compares the 19th century uh, with the 9th so you have that you also have Christmas Carol in 1843 which is a kind of time travel story and the time travel tale definitely isn't disappearing anytime soon party ah. <laughs> you made it yeah oh no girls you know John Connor Time travel has not yet been invented, but 30 years from now, it will have been. In 1829, William Heath created a series of prints called The March of Intellect, and I'll put an image of it on the website. One of them from 1829 is really interesting. It actually looks at, um, it explores the idea of machines that can travel, and it's quite a chaotic painting. It's very, very full, but there's something very exciting about it. It's very dynamic, and it brings people in close contact. There's a tunnel depicted in it that would uh, link up people with Bengal. It says, direct to Bengal. So there's a lot that's going on in that painting that I think points to some of the excitement of the Victorian era about all of the possibilities with the world becoming smaller. In the 19th century, the world became much smaller. Travel became quicker. Time and space were fundamentally changed. Which is why I think so many people, myself included, are fascinated by this period in time. It's a time in which we recognise ourselves. Any time before the Victorian age just seems so alien, so inaccessibly different from our own. But from the mid-19th century onwards, it's completely fascinatingly possible to draw a direct line to our own world. The time when we became fascinated by technology and progress, timetables and productivity. When science, trade and transport first became what they are today. A time so recognisable because of a profoundly new approach to time itself. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, please get in touch. The show's on Facebook and Instagram, and I'm on Twitter as well, at CEDREID, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. Or head over to the Words to That Effect website, which is WTTEpodcast.com, WTTEpodcast.com. There are links to all the episodes there, as well as show notes for this and every episode, including that amazing William Heath picture I'll put up as well. And of course, tell your friends. It's all I ask in return for providing you with obscure information about Victorian time standardization. Just an iTunes review or a post on Facebook would be great. Special thanks this week to my guest, Dr. Trish Ferguson. There are links to her profile and to her publications and everything else over at the website as well. Music this week was by Paddy Mulcahy. His music is fantastic. You can get more details and you can check it out by following the links on the website. And I think that's it. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in two weeks. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.